0: What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Scott Svenson. Scott is the CEO and co-founder of Mod Pizza, a fast casual restaurant chain that offers artisan style pizza and salads with nearly 500 locations across America. At its heart, Mod is a platform for doing good and is rooted in the idea that if you take care of their employees, they'll take care of their customers and the business will take care of itself. Prior to founding Mod, Scott and his wife Allie founded and sold two successful businesses while they lived in the UK, Seattle Coffee Company and Carluccio's. While in the UK, Scott served as the president of Starbucks Europe before returning to his hometown of Seattle to raise their four boys. Welcome, Scott. Good to see you.
1: Very nice to see you, too. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, we're going to start with rapid fire. Okay. Um, Given this crazy past year, I'm curious if you've read, listened to, or watched anything that has kind of left you with a strong impression or um, feeling.
1: Oh, my goodness. Uh, My reading has definitely picked up a lot during the pandemic. Uh, Just as a little tip, I use an app called Goodreads.
0: Oh, yeah. I love Goodreads
1: which is fabulous. My boys, I have four boys, and they use it as well, so we can kind of compare back and forth. Um, so I set myself some reading challenges, which is a great way to make sure that I'm doing my reading. I'd say the things that I've read, one, there's a um, uh, a fabulous historical book that I read that really stuck with me called the, uh, the Splendid and the Vile. It's about the first year of Winston Churchill's role as prime minister at the outset of uh, World War II. And it is a fabulous, fabulous story and it's very engaging. And I've also done a lot of reading around, um, interestingly enough, mindfulness and Buddhism. And oh, so interesting. That's, that's been a big area. I'm normally reading two or three books at a time. And so there's always one that's that I go to. On that, the
0: rotation. It depends what mood you're in, right?
1: Yeah. I normally have like a business book so that because there's a bunch of stuff that I still have to learn. And yeah, I have something about kind of your mental makeup mindset, what have you. And then I I also love history and I've gone kind of deep into um, early American history um, and and trying to really kind of understand. That time I read um, Ben Franklin's, a biography on Ben Franklin, which was a thick book, but a fabulous read and and a couple of other books about that era.
0: Um, Okay, what is your biggest pet peeve?
1: Probably is uh, insincerity. Um, fake people. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think when, as we've aged, there's so, I mean, everybody has so much to offer and there's so much great in people. Um, When, when people show up in a way that's not authentic or real or, or they're putting on airs or what have you um, that bothers me maybe more than I, it should, or, or maybe. Well, you
0: don't have time for it and you want to surround yourself with people who lift you up and who you feel like are, seeing you completely and you can see completely. I get that hundred percent.
1: It's a great question. But the other one that comes to my mind is a lot of people complain about things that they have no control over. And that's one of the things that drives me crazy, which is if you can't control it, just let it go.
0: Um, okay. This is a lighter one. Um, what is the best concert you ever attended?
1: The best concert. I was just talking to someone about this the other day. Um, my favorite concert was when I was in high school, I went to The Who and The Who has been kind of a, a theme throughout my life. And it's actually been a, an inspiration in our whole journey with Maud. Um, but uh, there was another concert and the guy's name has just gone out of my head. Um, it'll come back to me. Mm-hmm.
0: And so, okay, <laughs> this is MOD related. Yep. What is your all-time favorite pizza on the menu at MOD? You've got so many good ones.
1: Yeah, so f- four of the classics are named after my boys. So I try to avoid um, ascribing my favorite. I will tell you, though, we had a, we had a flash mod or a, a seasonal mod a, a few years back um, that I absolutely loved called the Valencia. It mm. was a take on a taco pizza, and we put a wedge of lemon in the middle that went in the oven and it came out hot, and you squeezed the lemon over the pizza. Oh,
0: wow. It was fabulous. I wish I had had that. You managed to bring it back. I uh, my, my kids love great. mod. We're we're regulars there, by oh, the way. Yeah, thanks. absolutely. Um if you could be famous as either an athlete, author, rock star, or actor, which one would you choose?
1: Uh I'd probably go with author.
0: Nice. But
1: a, a kind of a childhood dream would have been athlete. Um
0: what, were, you, were you an athlete in high school?
1: I yes, I played. All the normal sports in high school: football, basketball, baseball. I played football in college, and
0: oh, you played in college?
1: Yeah, I played until I got hurt, and that kind of, I was um, growing up. My identity was very wrapped up in what I did, and I was through, you know, all the way through high school and college. I was a quarterback until one day I got hurt, and I wasn't anymore. That's and so very that, depressing. Well, it was it was probably one of the best life lessons that I've ever had to learn, because. I blew my shoulder out. And even though I was I made an attempt to come back, I kind of knew that was the end of that journey. And yeah. um, it required me to kind of shift my mindset and grow up a little bit at a time when i I could always fall back on that. That was always, yeah. you know, an easy part of when someone would say, Tell me about yourself, Scott Svensson quarterback. And yeah. um, that Didn't had we're at to
0: Pelview high school.
1: I did go to Bellevue High School. Yeah.
0: Oh, geez, we're rivals, Mercan High School. <laughs> oh, I was also a college athlete, so I get that, that you're like, you're one one injury away from that just being like in the rearview mirror. Well, you know, it's
1: interesting, part of this mindfulness, you know, Buddhism, what have you, is one of the lessons is attachment and not becoming attached. And we create these identities for ourselves. You know, when someone says, you know, Shauna, so tell me about yourself, you, you have a bunch of labels and a bunch of. And I, I think it's really important not to become too attached to this idea, this self-concept that I am a CEO, I am a quarterback, I am a totally. Yeah, that's what I do. That's not who I am.
0: Um, yeah. So yeah, I would love th- I would love to hear more about the books that you're reading because I um, I'm actually really curious about reading more about Buddhism also. Yeah. So and and your boys playing football?
1: Yes. Uh, so all of them played growing up. As a matter of fact, I spent ten years coaching youth football, which was Some of the best memories of raising my sons. It was fabulous. Um, One of them played in college. um, And then um, another one is still playing. He's a junior at Bellevue High. They just finished a very peculiar season where they played four games that just ended like two weeks ago. Yeah. Um, And he has one season left. He'll be a senior next year. Yeah.
0: Okay. Two more of these rapid fire. Given your experience also starting the Seattle Coffee Company, I'm curious how you take your coffee now. Uh,
1: I've always taken it the same way. Well, that's not true. Black, um, brewed coffee, whether or not it's a French press or just a good brewed coffee. Uh, I love the Clover at Starbucks. I think it produces a great coffee. Just in the last three or four years, I've take, I have started to take a little bit of um, half and half or cream in it, um, but otherwise just simple. I yeah. love it, but it's it's got to be dark and rich. I'm not really a big light. Coffee, yeah. I'm not a big light, um, coffee fan. I like it. The darker and richer, the better.
0: Yeah. Okay. Final question: Beach or mountains?
1: Mountains. Love them both. And Allie and I have this discussion all the time. But we spend a lot of time in Sun Valley, Idaho. And there's something about the mountains and getting out. And we do a lot of trail running and hiking. And and that is kind of our happy place.
0: Yeah. I love it. So, okay. So you grew up in Bellevue. Are you um, an only child or you have siblings? Like, tell me about your family. I
1: have, are uh, four uh, kids, three siblings. I have an older sister, a younger sister and a younger brother.
0: Okay. So you're right there in the middle. And what were you like in high school? It sounds like you were a sporty spice, like all about the sports. And were you driven, um, you know, as far as business, were you thinking like as a typical entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. I, um, I was pretty, Driven or maybe maybe put differently, I was I was pretty responsible. You know, I, I played three sports. I focused on school. Um, I had a lot of fun. You know, I kind of had a a very typical, somewhat idyllic idyllic uh, upbringing. Um, but I I wouldn't have said that I was entrepreneurial. I did work from an early age. I I was a janitor. I had a paper route. So I I learned. Someone once told me that if you want to take stock of someone's work ethic, ask them when they first started working. And the earlier that is, there's a correlation. I don't know if that's true, but I, I think for me, I, I certainly, I worked all the way through college. I started my first job when, when I was like 12 years old. And um, but um, and I don't want mean to imply that I was working around the clock. I, I was like a normal kid, um,
0: yeah.
1: but uh, I, I was pretty diligent, um, but I wasn't. I wouldn't say particularly entrepreneurial. When I was in college, I, was, I went to a liberal arts school and studied political science history. And when I graduated, I went to work for an investment bank. And I, I'll never forget going through the training program, which was a four-week program before we started. And I was working with guys from Wharton who'd, who'd focused on finance and accounting. And, and literally in the very first day of training, I had to raise my hand to have the instructor explain the concept of equity to me. And I literally could not have told you the difference between a balance sheet, a and and a cash flow statement when I graduated from college. I didn't. I had no idea. So I.
0: Who was who was guiding you along the way? Was it was it your parents or like a college counselor or a teacher? Like, how do you even choose Harvard over, you know? At, yeah, at so
1: it's a great question. I, I, um, you know, as most kids, I went through high school. I tried to do a good job. I really didn't think a lot about where did I want to go next, and. And I would tell you the person who probably pushed me the most at that stage was my dad. And, and you know, that was a time when, yeah, they, they kind of recruited for football, but it was nowhere near what it is like today. And yeah, so my no,
0: dad, I know. I tell my kids, I'm like, this is not what we went through.
1: No, I mean, my dad actually put together some VHS tapes and sent them out to a bunch of schools. And, and as a result, I got recruited by a bunch of schools. And I'm positive I would not have been recruited if it weren't for my dad going through the process of putting these tapes together and sending them out. Um, And it kind of just happened where I got recruited. I went on these school visits and these doors opened. it wasn't because I was, I had a plan and I was scheming and working for all these years. It was kind of like, I just did what I did. My dad helped open those doors or maybe lifted my head up a little bit and said, you could do this if you wanted to. And, and it just all kind of opened up and I will tell you, that given how competitive things are now, the transparency, the way information flows, I would never have had the opportunities today that I had then. Um, Because I just think there was, information didn't flow as well. So this random quarterback from Seattle who was probably middle of the pack, all of a sudden was given these great opportunities because my dad made the effort of sending these tapes out. Whereas, you know, the kid down the street who didn't have the same you know, push from behind might not have had the same opportunities, although he might have right. been a
0: better quarterback. Well, that's what makes you a great leader, too. And especially with how you're uh, building mod is, is just your, um, your recognition of that, right? Some people just think like they deserve everything that they've ever gotten. And there is some acknowledgement that you started a little ahead because of the push. And, um, and that makes sense to me. OK, so you move to New York because that is kind of the typical you go to Harvard, then you go to New York. Yeah. Um, but you could have got done just about anything. Investment banking is such a great foundation for business. Like, you know, to set you up for anything that you do, to understand how to read a balance sheet and a PL is helpful. <laughs> yeah. Did you get recruited out of Harvard to go to different investment banks? And which one did you choose?
1: Yeah. So it's really interesting. I, um, similar to my process of going to school, I worked hard in college and I tried to do my best. I had no plan for when I graduated and, you know, banks and others come to campus and you're talking to your buddies. Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to these interviews. I might, I should probably sign up for a few of those. And I interviewed with four or five banks. Um, uh, I ended up narrowing it down to two. Uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert is Mm -hmm. the traditional corporate finance route. And then Bankers Trust wanted me to come and be a trader. I didn't even really know the difference. i literally had to kind of get people to explain to me, well, what, what's this path versus that path? I ultimately decided to go to Drexel and to get into corporate finance because quite simply, I viewed it as an opportunity to get a broader education. Yeah. And the value for me of investment banking was they educated me, uh, they worked my ass off. So I really did understand what it took. You know, my, I kind of felt like the rest of my career, even though I've worked hard at everything I've done, has been easy because the bar. Well, was investment so banking, so
0: you're like sleeping under your desk. I mean, that's like a 24 seven. Totally. So everything crazy. since then has felt yes. like,
1: Oh, this is, this is not bad.
0: Yeah. But I and have there, heard about you that you're a really, really, really hard worker. So maybe the foundation is just there that your bar is just different because of where you started.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I, I do think that based on the experiences I've had in life, whether or not it was Working in college, going to school and working—I worked 20 to 30 hours a week going to college.
0: Yeah, well, in, and being an athlete—that that balancing all of it, these things yeah. is hard.
1: And um, and then coming out of school and investment bank—I just, I've everything about and in playing sports. You were a college athlete. You realize there's a direct correlation between the work you put in in the off season and how well you perform during the season. You know, it's the mm-hmm. law of the harvest, right? You reap what you sow. And those lessons were planted in me early and it just was intuitive to me.
0: Where, where does Ali fit into this whole picture? You guys met in middle school?
1: We met in high school. So we started oh, in high dating at Bellevue High when I was 16 and she was 15. So you've yeah. been
0: together this whole time? We have, yep. Wow, and yeah. business partners. That's like, yeah, that's, talk about the unicorn situation. That's amazing. Well, and I mean, a lot of people ask
1: what was the luckiest break in my life. It was meeting her and just the fact that we've been able to share this journey together. And we are a really good complement to each other. We we help each other because we kind of complete each other in a lot of different ways. She's incredible and has talents that I don't. Uh, and I have some capabilities that are different from hers. And so yeah. we, we do balance each other.
0: They do say, like, surround yourself with people who are strong where you're weak and who better to to surround yourself with than the person whose like values are completely aligned in every way for where you're trying to take your lives. That's amazing. So how did the Seattle coffee company thing come to you? Did you, you founded it or somebody came to you with the idea?
1: Uh, So we founded it and it was very much the byproduct of, I was, uh, I went from school to New York, was in New York for about 18 months and was given an opportunity to, I could either go back to business school or they gave me an opportunity to move to London and kind of, become I mean you know this this an associate so I kind of bypassed that and it was for me it was I'd never traveled abroad I hadn't traveled a lot as a kid so this was like a one-year assignment to go live abroad I'd never been abroad so this was like this is awesome oh cool go to London yeah and that turned into an 11-year journey in London and so after my first six nine months Ali who went to Wellesley and then moved back to Seattle, was given, she was always interested in broadcast journalism and she was given this really awesome job at King 5 News and she was going to be mentored by Jean Anderson. And oh wow! she was like, this is awesome, but she's now in Seattle, I'm in London. And we started to have these conversations around, okay, what's our future? And um, I said, maybe you should come to London and I'll, I'll give Allie credit. She was like, if this is going to work, that's probably what needs to happen. And so she packed up her stuff, moved to London. Um, And literally within days of her arriving, she started to identify all the things that London really needed that they didn't have. At the very top of the list was a Starbucks style coffee experience. And so that started a a long conversation that lasted about four years, including conversations with friends and where some very good friends of ours finally said to us, you guys have been talking about this for years you should either do something about it or stop talking about it. And, <laughs> and uh, I mean, it even got to the point, Sean, and this is a funny story. Ali called Starbucks, Seattle's Best Coffee, Pete's, and said, when are you guys coming? There's a big opportunity here. If there's anything we can do to help, we just are curious about, we will, we'd love the product here. Yeah. And the answer consistently was, we're not coming for a long time, we've got other priorities. And so we finally said, all right, maybe we should do it ourselves. Allie really spear- spearheaded it to her credit. Um, we set up one shop in Covent Garden in London just to see if it would work. It worked really well, so we opened up two more That's and
0: amazing. then it was just kind
1: of off to the races. At that point, I, I had gone from investment banking to kind of a hybrid investment banking, private equity, to I was brought in to be deputy CEO of a healthcare company in the UK and uh, did that for three years. Um, and it was during that time that we started Seattle Coffee Company. And after six months, realized it was gonna take off or it needed more focus. And so I resigned from this healthcare company and the team I was working with thought I was absolutely crazy.
0: Probably, yeah.
1: And uh, and and moved to helping to build with Allie. and And so we did this really interesting handoff because She had been lead, you know, running it. I stepped in, and we'd been working on it together. But I had a full time job, and literally, as she was getting ready to give birth to our first son, Tristan, I started full time June first. I kind of took over. Tristan arrived June twenty second. We opened our fourth store June twenty sixth, and it was just kind of off to the races from there. I mean,
0: talk about a a a learning curve. You got to learn coffee, which is a whole industry, a whole new business that you is so detailed and so much nuance to like all of it and learn retail and do it in another country.
1: We didn't know, we literally didn't have any retail or coffee experience. Right. But we had a very clear vision of what we thought needed to exist in London that didn't exist. And I think we were um, smart enough to know we needed to surround ourselves with people who had a lot more knowledge and experience. And we were very fortunate to be able to surround ourselves with some really great people. And then we figured it out. And I'll tell you what, um, not being burdened by a lot of detailed knowledge actually probably was the thing that allowed us to do it and to do it well, because so many people who knew the UK retail scene so much better than we did, told us it was a terrible idea and it would never work for the following 10 reasons. And they, they were very valid reasons. But they just didn't see what was in our mind's eye. And it was inspired by Starbucks, right? If you had never been exposed to Starbucks and you were mm-hmm. in the UK, you know, that we had a really experienced uh, retail entrepreneur who was well known in the UK, who was part of our advisory team. And he literally said to us several years after we opened our first store, I joined the team and agreed to support you guys and, and to invest to make the process of failure less painful because I really liked you too. <laughs> and and he awesome. said that I just, I didn't think there was a chance that you would be able to open a shop, pay the rents in London, pay the labor rates in London, not to yeah. mention all the other expenses, selling cups of coffee. I just, oh, it's just incredible. That. And
0: then you sell, sold it for $90 million to Starbucks and they wanted you to stay on for a year. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So um, there was a a unique uh, accounting structure that was used for the transactions called the pooling of interest. It doesn't exist anymore. Um, and because of that structure, they, they couldn't tie us up in any way. You, ah. you had to maintain total continuity between the way the company was run. And so they couldn't sign us up to contracts or non-competes or anything else. So it was literally a handshake where wow. I agreed with Howard Schultz, Howard Bihar, and Orrin Smith, that I would stick around to make the trans- to make the transaction as successful for them as it was for our my shareholders and and I did I, I stuck around for a couple of years and um, and frankly working with Starbucks is a great company and we'd always looked up and admired and respected them and so it was fabulous for me to be able to step into this company that I'd always uh, revered and and spend a couple of years working with this group of people who were incredible. I mean, Howard Schultz, Oren Smith, and Howard Bihar are three Amazing. of the of all time. Absolutely. And uh, just to be able to hang out with them for a couple of years and learn from them was a real, in addition to all the other elements of the deal, it was it was a real right. gift. Uh, well, and then
0: this launched you into a whole nother thing with Carluccio's. And yeah. so what was the concept there? And it was it like, oh, I guess this is what I'm doing now. I'm like retail guy.
1: Yeah. So after um, we sold Seattle Coffee Company and we then helped manage the transition, um, we had a decision to make and, and I came back to spend a summer in Seattle to put in place the strategic plan for Starbucks in Europe and they asked me to do it from Seattle so that I could really uh, engage the leaders of all the functions in Seattle supply chain and the people team and ops team, so that we could actually put a strategy in place that they could support. Um, and so I spent three months here. And at the end of that three months, the board signed off on the strategic plan and Orrin Smith and Howard Schultz said, all right, now what we want you to do, one of the recommendations was, you guys should replace me at some point because Europe should be led by a European. If you, it, if you want it to be accepted and authentic. And so they said, we accept that. That's a great recommendation, but we want you, um, they had McKenzie or Bain or someone doing a lot of work with them at the time. And one of the things they didn't have in place was a progression plan, a succession plan for a lot of their leadership team. And so they said, we want you, and they identified two other leaders to enter into this program, but we need a five-year commitment because we're going to, we're going to announce it and we're going to make it visible to wall street and to investors. And, and we don't want you to leave a year or two in and, um, I was flattered, but I used that as an opportunity to take some time with Allie and talk about what we wanted to do in life. And so we decided what we really wanted to do was go back and build something again. Um, and I, I had a great meeting with Howard Schultz where I, I laid it out for him. And he is, he's incredible, because I said, listen, first of all, I'm gonna decline your offer and here's why. We had two hours together. Halfway through, he said, I'm really disappointed and I would have done the same thing if I were in your shoes. Um, because just as an entrepreneur, I said, listen, Howard, I love this business and I, I love you guys and I love the Starbucks brand, but I just don't think I'm cut out to build someone else's business. Yeah, uh, you've got the bug. Yeah. And I, and so in any event, that's what we decided to do. And one of the next projects we took on is we were introduced to um, Antonio and Priscilla Carluccio, these two incredible uh, amazing entrepreneurs in London and they asked us for some help with a project that they were working on and because of Seattle Coffee Company which was a small business that got a lot of press in the UK they reached out to us for help and so we again were flattered and we loved them they were well known and we leaned in and for um, I think it was like 10 or 11 years worked with them and um, some of which we were in the UK some of which we then moved back to the states yeah to help them build this amazing business called Carluccio's which is one of the, the, our favorite businesses of all time and the way i describe it is that if you were to imagine a mashup of Dean and DeLuca Starbucks and a french cafe oh, it's like a dream but make it italian that was carluccio's and antonio was this well-known italian chef personality priscilla was the sister of a guy named terrence conran who's a well-known restaurateur and retailer who had this amazing design athletic aesthetic so together they created this amazing brand and to be honest we got more credit than we deserved. we just helped them develop a plan for how to build the business they had created the magic and yeah. uh, it was such a fun, fun experience. Um, yeah. and we, it sounds
0: like you haven't had much failure yet. Like I'm still waiting. We haven't even gotten to mod, which is such a crazy, crazy success. Um, well, what
1: I mean, I will tell you, Sean, we've, we've had plenty of failures and, and I'm a big believer in the growth mindset. And so, you know, we have a, we have a belief that um, uh, we're going to fail all the time and you've got to be able to use those failings as an opportunity to learn and grow but we will never accept failure. You know, there's a difference mentally between I failed and therefore I'm done versus I'm gonna have failure all the time. And that's just a right. process of learning. And we've, we've had plenty of that. And one of the learnings I had is after we moved back to Seattle, we said, we're not doing any more retail because Seattle Coffee Company and Carluccio's were both magical experiences Uh, And you're in a very fickle industry. And we're like, if we try it a third time, we're going to screw it up. It's going to, you know, we don't want to taint that experience. We we said, we're not doing it. We want to explore a whole bunch of other stuff, some of which was very successful and some of which was not so successful. And, but all of that informed us to say, we want to go back and do this model thing and how we wanted to do it. And so all of those experiences, even though some of them weren't super successful, led us to what we did. And so again, growth mindset, it was all kind of part of this plan that, that worked and and it was the tuition we paid to figure out what we really wanted to do.
0: Right. So where did this idea come from, Vermont? I know that you guys were looking for like what you wanted to do with your kids and how to share a family meal over an amazing experience. And also um, just all of the uh, focus that you put around culture and creating a different type of environment with people being first. But why pizza? Like, of all things.
1: So, um, we were not looking to get back into retail. Um, and we were at the stage in life where the financial crisis had hit, you know, and this is back in 2007, 2008. And um, I had, we had made a large investment in the financial services business. Um, During the crisis, I had gotten, and it was more of an investment in a team we believed in. And during the financial crisis, I got pulled in to to help run that business, not by desire, but by need. Um, And meanwhile, we'd started Mod, and we were involved in some philanthropic things that gave us exposure to one way of giving back which we decided was not the most effective way for us, but it re- really kind of focused our mind. So all these things were coming together, the financial crisis, a lot of need in the community. We chaired this big luncheon that for nine months we invested a ton of time in, but it really gave us exposure to, even in a place like the, on the east side in Bellevue where there's a lot of affluence, something like at the time, something like one out of every three kids was going to bed hungry. It was a shocking statistic, but it was this this insight that Ali and I had. And and then we had this financial services experience where um, it was not the right environment for me, the right um, culture slash kind of mission. And then we had mod and all these things kind of mixed up and we're like, wow, what happens if we really lean into mod and use it as a platform from which we can actually, in a more sustainable and impactful way, make a difference. But chairing a luncheon, we spent nine months, we did a lot of work, we raised a lot of money, it was very successful, but it's done. Now, it's not it, ongoing, right. There's no sustainability to it. But then we, we looked at our business and said, yeah, but we know how to do this. We know how to build a retail business. And if we build it with the specific intention to use it as a platform to make a sustainable Positive social impact. What would that be like? And how would that feel? And, you know, in life, you're looking for that inspiration. You're looking for that thing that you, once you've seen it, you're almost like, I cannot not do this. I have to do this because that's what you need as an entrepreneur to get out of the bed early every morning and to work late at night and to make, you know, to make the commitment that is necessary to build a successful business. And Allie and I, as soon as that got under our skin, we were like, this is it. And this could be really awesome if we could figure out how to do it. and Right.
0: And look at it differently, it sounds like, from just looking at measuring like, okay, how many butts in the seats? How many pizzas did we sell? What was our balance sheet looking like? It's really about kind of what you're giving back as far as offering personal growth and opportunity um, for others.
1: As a business person, as an entrepreneur, we are all what I consider business athletes, right? It's a sport, right? And we want to go out and win and we want to score points. Um, But for us, we've kind of redefined what the game is. So when we score points, meaning we grew our revenue, we grew our earnings, the question then is then why? Why are you doing it? And for us, it's we have a flywheel and it, it guides everything we do at Mod. And there are four quadrants to the flywheel. The first is an authentic purpose to use our business as a platform to make a positive social impact. We say that Mod exists to serve people in order to contribute to a world that works for, and includes everyone. And that's the North Star, right? So, and to do that, we're going to um, bring a group of people together who care about that mission and we're gonna engage them and inspire them. So they feel like they're a part of something that is about something more meaningful. And given that much of our purpose is around our people and in particular giving opportunities to people who otherwise face barriers to employment, that next quadrant is so key, which is our people and how they feel and making sure that they understand this journey is about them. And if we take care of them, they'll then take care of our customers, building a loyal and engaged customer base. And then the next quadrant is a successful business. And if you take care of your people and they take care of the customers, the business will take care of itself. Absolutely. And they'll have the resource to invest back into our mission, our purpose, which will then do more for our people which will just keep that, they get that flywheel turning yeah. fast. And we discovered that early in this journey. We've kept it simple. That's what we're focused on. And it's what's really powered the growth behind the business and the, the willingness to kind of lean in. Listen, yeah. we, we were fortunate with shallow coffee company and Carluccio to have some success. So we had a comfortable life. We didn't need to do this. Um, and so it, this challenge of building a successful business that can make a sustainable social impact so that the bigger the business becomes, the bigger and more profound the impact, that became this new paradigm for us. That well, that's is-
0: more of a legacy move, right? It's more like, hey, what, what mark, how will we be remembered? It's like, great, we have some success, we've got some affluence, but what actually is our mark that we're leaving on the yep. universe? And you're doing it, yep. it's so awesome. I love that I actually read a quote that you said, um, we're all about equality of opportunity, which does not mean we believe in equality of outcomes. And that if you, there was something you said about like pollution and the ocean that like, yes, pollutants in the ocean, but it doesn't mean that it's, that the ocean is polluted. It's it's actually, it's a a Gandhi quote, which just struck me. um, It really stuck with me because I was like, I don't want to be in that mindset because if you're in that mindset, nobody's going to do anything. If you're just fearful of like, that one bad egg, like what about the opposite? That like trusting in the universe that most people are good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I will tell you that fortunately we have seen through just our journey at MOD. And by the way, so much of what has um, developed at MOD around our purpose and our impact has been, has been um, done by our team. We said, we wanna head north. We wanna create this platform. And we brought a bunch of people together and they started to fill in all the blanks and it was really yeah. fair work. And we just then cheered him on and said, that is awesome. And so much of it was the stories of these individual people who you understood, okay, they spent multiple um, sentences in prison. Our first kind of key impact hire is a guy named Corey. He's still with us. He'd been in prison three times. But when you got to know him, the conclusion I reached was, man, if, I, if we changed... Uh, seats, I probably would have done what he did. Totally. And, and and so he just was a victim of the circumstances and then tried to survive and made some bad decisions. But then one led to the, you know, it just created the snowball effect. And as soon as we brought him in and said, your past may well describe you. It doesn't need to define you. And we believe in you. And here's an opportunity. And he took the opportunity and And so many people like him have done the same, where they have been, whatever we invested in them, they paid us back a thousandfold and they are incredible people, grateful. We talk about the journey at Mod is about getting to gratitude because once you get to that sense of gratitude, I don't think there are any emotions more powerful than, other than love, gratitude. If you truly feel grateful in your heart and you want to give back, which was what happens is these people are like, well, you accepted me for who I was, meaning I have tattoos, I have ear piercings, I have, you know, nose, whatever. And you've accepted me for that. And you accepted my background and you believed in me. I just want to give back. And I want to, I want to prove you right. You had high expectations for me. And I want to prove to the world that you were right. And I want to now pay it forward to the next person. And that momentum that comes is you can't, you, you can't make it up. You can't, you know, it's so powerful. And all we're simply trying to do is say, let's do more of that. Let's take Corey and try to create the next two. to make I can imagine
0: better. it would be super addicting. And as you're talking, you know, I recruit for so many cool companies and sometimes I'm like so impressed by their business model or their product that they're launching. But nowadays more than ever, um, candidates and people are very intentional around joining companies that are about social good and giving back. It's a it's it's not just lip service; it's real. Like people are turning down opportunities because they don't believe in the vision of the leadership or that they're actually um, caring. Yours yours leading with that. I mean, I would imagine that it's your people are banging down your doors to come work there. But I'm curious what your recruiting strategy has been, and also your vetting process yep. for just ensuring also that you're. Um, you know, hiring people that, you know, can be the next query?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's a great, great question. And you're right. We are doing a better job sharing with people um, who we are, what we're about building our employment brand, which you will, you know, you'll understand well, and we haven't really done that in the past. The story had gotten out. We're trying to be more intentional about it. So, because we believe that if we attract and build a community of people who are committed to serving others, Meaning they really care about who we are, how we approach life, what we believe and and the impact we're trying to make in the world. They will be happy here. They will find contentment because it will allow them to fulfill what they're trying to accomplish. Make a good living, take care of their family, but then to be able to serve others and and make a positive impact in the world. And what we found is when those people have landed at MOD, it's like they're plugged in and they're so alive. And so we're trying to be much more intentional now about as part of our hiring um, screening for those things because, you know, listen, we, we are open. We will hire people regardless of their background. We've really specialized in hiring people that have been justice involved, opportunity youth, the people between the ages of 16 and 24 who are not in school and not employed, who if not given a job or some other focus may well end up in prison and then people with intellectual and developmental d- disabilities. Those are three areas where we've really focused. Um, and we've become intentional about how we go about hiring them. But even people in those communities, not they're not already Vermont. Um, and this is what someone like Corey, who now is helping us develop our impact hiring programs, has educated me on, which is we went through a stage in our life where we were hiring anyone who was coming out of prison. And Corey educated us that, that's not the right approach because some people just aren't ready. They're not they are not going to be successful here because they haven't gone through the steps you need to to be successful. And so we're, we're getting smarter about it um, and, and our hiring practices are becoming more refined. It's a journey for us. And I would tell you that the reason why I'm so excited about MOD is we've grown a lot. Um, we've had some success and I think we are making a real impact. But I will tell you, if, if this is a nine inning game, we're just finishing the first inning and we're we're just scratching the surface of what we can do. And we're just, I feel like we're just becoming good at what we're doing. Not great. We're just becoming good, but we see the path to all the things that we could do to become great. And that's, that keeps us so motivated because you know, our business is complicated. It's not very complex, meaning, it, it there. We have 500 stores. We've got a lot going on. So there's a lot of moving pieces, but if you distill it down, it's a very simple business. And so we're continually trying to just stay focused on keeping it simple, even though, yeah, when you think about all the moving pieces and the fact that it's all a people business and you've got people walking in and out of stores every day and there's risks and there's, we're, we're trying really hard to stay true to our beliefs of empowering our team, not having a lot of rules. Um, and, and, because we don't have a lot of rules, we have very strongly held beliefs. You do need to be careful about who you bring in. We, one of our beliefs is wide boulevard, high curbs, meaning be clear on the curbs, wide boulevards. You have a lot of latitude in between. But one of the beliefs, the, the, one of the implications of that belief is if you jump a curb, you're out, done, move on. There's no second conversation. You can go away and come back again but, but you're, you're out. And um, so, yeah, it's a journey.
0: Wow. I'm super inspired. So Scott, I have a lot that I wanted to cover with you really quickly in how's the past year for the pandemic been? Sure.
1: Yeah. So we were um, March of last year, we were uh, we were in a great spot. Uh, We'd been investing in a bunch of initiatives and making a lot of improvements to our business that were really flowing through in the beginning of last year, we were growing We were feeling pretty good until, you know, the second, third week of March and everything changed. And it was, it really smacked us. And we had to, we had to close all of our dining rooms. Our sales went from growing at about 10%, our comp sales, which was very good for our industry to being down 60% overnight. And then we had to shift, open up a bunch of channels that have really helped us because we had to lean into a lot of our off-premise channels and our digital platform all things that we were working on, but we had to just do three years of work in three three weeks or three months. I mean, it was the team came together and really um, got after it. We had to close our support center. Everyone went virtual, unfortunately, because we had to prepare for the worst. We had to actually uh, furlough some people and lay some people off, which was an incredibly difficult stage, but it was the mantra for us at the time is, is that if we're committed to serving, we have to survive. Um, and so we, with this whole focus on surviving the pandemic, because we just didn't know, was 60% down the beginning of heading to 80, 90% down, or was it 60% down for a year? or you know, we just didn't know. Right, nobody school. knew
0: how long, for sure.
1: We didn't know how long, and so we were trying to prepare for the worst. But I will tell you that it really galvanized the team we came together, and we just started the slow march back, and the sales started picking up week after week. And it got back to about flat at the end of the year. Now, there was a lot of drama in between because in addition to different spikes, we had really crazy weather. We had the social um, justice movement, which given our culture and what we believe, it really impacted us a lot. And it was, in some ways, it felt like we were made for the times, but it did create some challenges just around how we showed up in a way that was authentic to who we were. So we had to manage through that. it, it just was a, an incredibly challenging, stressful year that had a real silver lining to it.
0: Oh, yeah, um, you did so much. I mean, Operation Hunger, delivering over 10,000 hot meals. Yeah, I mean, we did. We, we tried incredible. to lead by,
1: by living our values and being who we wanted to. And I, I would, there was a lot of stuff we did. And I won't go through the whole laundry list. But the one thing that was probably most relevant was we've always offered an employee a free meal when they're working. And because many of our employees um, are getting back on their feet, they were either homeless before they came out of prison, having a really healthy square meal once a day that's free to them is important. And so that's always been a part of who we've been. During the pandemic, because we had to cut back on hours and we knew that people were going to be stretched financially. In addition to other things we did for them, we, um, we basically said, this free meal benefit, we're going to extend it. And it doesn't just need to be when you're working. If you're a mod employee, you can come in for a free meal anytime you need one. And you can bring your entire family. That's incredible. Um, because we didn't want anyone to go hungry, right? And we, we feed people. And so that's something we could do. Um, the other thing we did is we really leaned into something that we've had uh, for many years called the Bridge Fund. And this was in reaction to uh, the realization that something like 40-45% to of all Americans could not handle a $400 unexpected expense in a given month because they live paycheck to paycheck. And we wanted our squad to feel like we had their back. And so we put in place this bridge fund, which is an emergency relief fund. If you have an emergency, medical emergency, a car emergency, a housing emergency, you can apply to the bridge fund and very quickly get feedback. And you'll receive, if it's accepted, and meaning a group of your peers evaluates your request as being sincere and authentic um, a, a grant of up to $2,000, no wow. questions yes. asked. And so what we did is we put a bunch of more resource up into the bridge fund during the pandemic and the demand for grants spiked, as you can imagine. So of course. I think we ended up granting almost a million dollars of bridge grants and, you know, $500, $1,000 increments Amazing. to just people who, you know, listen, they just were trying to get by. So there was a lot of stuff we did, but those were two things that were- Those are
0: incredible.
1: Consistent with our, our beliefs and our values. And what's interesting is, you know, just to kind of frame this up and I'll, I'll end with this, you know, we, we try really hard to reinforce our culture, and, but I'm still learning. And I'm actually learning from our team. We had a call with some of our real culture carriers, some of the people in our field who have been acknowledged and identified as being real leaders, but their general managers district managers and we had a call um, regularly with them during the pandemic and on one of these calls i asked them the question should we make this free meal benefit that we extended permanent should we make it a permanent part of our our approach or our policy and the team you know thought about it and said you know no one's taken advantage of it it hasn't been abused so yeah we should and then they all paused and they all looked at each other and one of them spoke up and said, Scott, no, we shouldn't make it a permanent policy. And, and we're missing the point. At Maud, you have always encouraged us and the culture has always encouraged us to, in any given situation or at any given circumstance, just do the right thing. And the right, if we have a squad member or a squad member's family who's hungry, the right thing is to feed them. So we would always feed them. You don't need to make it a policy
0: interesting oh so that's so by, awesome
1: by making it a policy you're diminishing or taking
0: away the empowerment of other people to make that call yes. and so
1: it was like a master class and i was the wow. student being wow. taught by our team about how our culture really comes to life and i just sat there and i thought you guys are awesome you're absolutely right we're not making it a formal policy because you guys are, have always been empowered to do that and we don't want to change right right so, yeah, oh, I love it. I'm so
0: super inspired by you. My final question for you, Scott, is what fuels you? What's your ultimate fuel?
1: In addition to Allie and my my boys and my family, uh it, it's so I will this sounds trite and I and I don't mean it to sound cheesy, but I will tell you that um, uh what makes me happy and content and gives me um, joy is is being of service and giving back, and being in a position where we can um, make a difference in the world um, using our business as a platform. And I'll tell you, just talking about Corey, it's funny because Corey, there's thousands of stories now like Corey, but even just talking about Corey just now,
0: you get warm. I,
1: I got a high. I mean, yeah. it was like I felt so good because I love that guy, and I know the journey he's been on. And you know, being immodest for a moment, I feel a pride associated with being you a part of his journey and a small part because we've always said mod doesn't build character. We just allow it to be revealed. And we've created a platform for these people to get on stage and perform in a way that's just onspire. And that is incredibly powerful. And the one thing I've learned in my life and you've been successful and you are around a lot of successful people. Um, I think a lot of people get caught up in the race to nowhere. But I'll tell you this this simple insight of why are people all chasing stuff that, you know, Howard Bihar, who was one of my mentors at at Starbucks said this to me on a flight and I was getting to know him right after the deal was closed. And we were sitting next to each other and he said, Scott, let me tell you a little story. It's about two old guys who are sitting on a bench shortly after the funeral of one of their best friends. And one of them looks to the other and says, do you know how much he left? And the other guy looks at him and says, yeah, he left everything. And I think people sometimes lose sight of the fact that if you think about how you feel today and what contributes to that, I will tell you for Ali and I, what we found is what is incredibly inspiring and makes us happy and, and feel satisfied and content and is that when we're able to give back and to be a part of that of world, making the world a better place, um, and here and for us it comes to to life through these stories. If you just hear the story of how it how it impacts, I will tell you the I don't care how much money you could give me, it would never be able to replace because I don't know what what would I do with the money? Buy a new T-shirt right. or whatever. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter. Of course, and I I don't mean to minimize it. There's a lot of science and research around. People need a minimum amount of resources to to be able to be fully content and happy. because Right, but it's not exponentially,
0: happiness doesn't correlate with the exponential above that. Not at all. Yeah.
1: There's a bunch of research that, that goes into, yes, if you can use money to invest in experiences or to free up time, there's a return on it. But a lot of the other stuff that we spend money on that doesn't accomplish those two things have no correlation with happiness. My big thing is, uh, actually, this comes from Nodder, who you know, it's celebrate early and often. And uh, that's kind of this mantra that he and I share and we talk about a lot, which is we're at a stage in life where, dude, don't hold back. Celebrate early and often because you just don't know how many more days you have to, to celebrate. And it's through experiences.
0: Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast.